Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Among the news stories we covered last week was one that looked at the impact non-native lake trout were having on the Yellowstone Lake ecosystem, and not just the one underwater. We also learned that the National Park Service has decided to take a look at some other options for managing traffic congestion at Arches National Park during peak visitation seasons. And the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation announced some of the projects it is taking up this year along the Blue Ridge Parkway. For those and other stories about the National Park System, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. Have you ever found yourself staring at the dark, starry skies overhead during your National Park vacation? In this week's show, we talk with the Park Service's original Dark Ranger, Kevin Poe, about what we're looking at overhead. Contributing writer Kim O'Connell also gives some insights on the article she's been researching concerning Venezuela's national parks and how the ongoing political and social turmoil in that country is impacting those special places. Finally, we take a look at some of the West's devilish place names. It's hard to forget your first true look at a clear, dark, and starry night sky. I'll never forget my first visit to Browns Park near Dinosaur National Monument. We had pulled in long after sundown, and after a quick bite, it was actually tough to fall asleep as there were so many stars studding the night sky like shimmering diamonds. I've seen similar star shows like that at Natural Bridges National Monument, Yellowstone National Park, and along the Colorado River Corridor deep in Canyonlands National Park. It's been said that the skies overhead are the other half of the national park system. To explore that idea, we reached out to Kevin Poe, a ranger from Bryce Canyon National Park, who also is known as the Dark Ranger and is the force behind Dark Ranger telescope tours. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Kurt. Great to have you here. Um, You know, it seems in recent years, more and more people are are staying out after dark and taking a look at the, the sky overhead. And any idea what's driving that? Oh, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, certainly, we can credit the Hubble Space Telescope bringing regular folks into astronomy. You know, there's, there's, it's 100% accessible to look at a, at a beautiful image um, from the Hubble Space Telescope. And, and uh, you don't need a strong background in physics or math or anything to say, wow, that's stunning. And, and that's part of it. And even though, you know, in these national park settings, we don't have the, the kind of aperture or technology to, uh, to show people images of that extreme quality, the experience of being underneath the Milky Way is uh, a contagious thing, something that uh, people want to share with others. And I think that's a lot of it. And it's also that the supply is available. There's so many national parks that make astronomy a uh, part of their, their daily or probably should say nightly offerings that uh, it's, it's become a craze. And, and it's a fun thing to be a part of. Yeah. Now, now let's uh, let's put down some some basics. Um, you grew up in the park system. Your your father was a ranger at uh, Capitol Reef, right, and as well as some other parks. Yeah. Um, when I was in my uh, middle school, high school years, we were in Capitol Reef, which still to this day is uh, is the best of all these national parks. Uh, send hate mail to darkrangertelescopetours dot com. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, lots of other places. Isle Royale uh, in the middle of Lake Superior and. And, uh, you know, remote places where growing up, I didn't realize that not everybody had the experience of Milky Way horizon to horizon. Uh, so when I finally entered uh, 
the metropolis known as Logan, Utah, which was my first chance at civilization going to school at Utah State, I, I realized what everybody had been missing. And uh, that's where my interest in and sharing astronomy with others became uh, more of a priority, I guess. So, so you kind of took um, stars overhead for granted growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I, we used to do these games that, uh, and I would talk to city kids and they would think, I act like I had two heads, but I remember uh, riding around the back, laying down the bed of a pickup and uh, as a little kid and trying to figure out where we were in the road system with only using the sky turning overhead as the truck made turns and things like that. And, and uh, so it's always been uh, something that I, that I grown up with. And, and uh, I don't think it's fair to say you get jaded, but you, you, uh, you, in an experience like that, you learn to uh, learn to realize what you have is special even though you may not notice it at the time. Yeah, yeah. Is there a particular season that's better than a, another one for stargazing uh, when, you, when you factor out the temperature? <laughs> See, I wonder if you're going to say that. Because uh, I say when you factor in the temperature, winter is the very best because I love cold, miserable weather. But not everybody does. And it kind of depends on what you're interested in. You know, you get the most diversity in the sky, deep space objects, exploded stars, nebulae, galaxies, uh, things like that to look at in the summertime and then the summer milky way is is more impressive it's just more stars and uh, you don't need as dark a sky to appreciate it but for those that are into astronomy you know they they might want the other the other side of the of the universe so to speak the winter uh sky gives you a different view it, it's um it's where you're looking out into the universe more out of our own galaxy than in summer sky in the northern hemisphere you're kind of looking inward to the galaxy but winter sky you're looking out so people who are interested in looking at other galaxies really love the winter sky because that's where you have the most variety of galaxies to look at and then Is the temperature it, factor besides sorry for interrupting there but the temperature factor um is important for air clarity. So I was going to say, yeah, yeah. better clarity in the winter because it's so cold and uh, right. And but it's you know it is cold. I mean, maybe not in Death Valley. Um, Death Valley <laughs> is great for winter stargazing if you're not comfortable with sub-zero temperatures. Um, but um, we still get people here in the wintertime uh, in the Bryce Canyon area that come for that reason uh, to come to see the stars and they bundle up and they know what they're getting into most of them anyway, and they have an amazing time. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned Death Valley, and I've uh, I've uh, been there. Although I, I don't recall particularly looking at the night sky when I was there, but I've seen you know gorgeous photos of the Milky Way, and, and yet it seems like there's still light pollution coming up from that uh, that small town to the uh, uh, southeast. I guess uh, Vegas, I think they call it. Yeah, I've heard of that place. Um, you know, I can I can see the light dome of Las Vegas from my observatory. I was I was playing on uh, Google Earth one day. And uh, one of my telescopes, one of my favorite telescopes, is positioned uh, 300,000 meters from the uh, Luxor beam. Uh, the, the big pyramid uh, uh, casino on the south end of the Strip has the largest, most powerful beam of light in the world. And uh, yeah, it works out as 300,000 meters from my telescope. So I moved my telescope one more meter away, and it's not any better. But the, uh, hmm. it's incredible, because anybody can see it. You know, you, I can point out on the horizon where the Dome of Las Vegas is, and I say, you know, if you're a flat earther, this is not interesting to you. <laughs> but if you realize how much curvature the Earth there is over 250 miles, you know, that's a, that's a beam that stands 60,000, 70,000 feet into the sky. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, it seems um, every year we're seeing more and more parks certified as an international dark sky park, I believe. Is there any um, short list of parks that you have as far as uh, these are the most spectacular night skies in the park system? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, 
<laughs> it sounds like Utah pride, and, and really it should be because the, the three or four uh, darkest places you can get to in a regular car, that's, that's our caveat, are all in Utah. Uh, so, and, and, the, and the top of the list is, is uh, it's somewhat debated. Certainly contenders include uh, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, and Natural Bridges, but it looks like based on the last round of data, the National Park Service Night Sky team collected uh, that Hovenweep is a little bit darker than all the rest. Really? Uh, so yeah, so let's hear it for Hovenweep. But but quite literally, um, the, the four darkest locations you can travel. And every everybody you'll talk to, everybody that you'll see it in print, they always have the darkest sky. There's 150 darkest places in North America. But if you go to the National Park Service Night Sky team, and maybe this is something we can put on your website, the URL. Uh, you can go through, you can mine through this data. They have a Google Earth layer, and it's pretty user-friendly. And Hovenweep scores the best. But, but you know, you don't have to come to Utah. You should, but, but you don't have to. Death Valley, especially the north end of Death Valley, is really dark. Uh, if you get up, oh, like in the, uh, the racetrack area, the, the lake where the stones uh, not mysteriously get blown around in the, in the winter mud. Sure, sure. Is one of the truly excellent places. We, we don't include that in accessible to a regular vehicle, um, but that would be a darker still. Wonder Lake and Denali never got measured by the night sky team, but in the winter when there is no midnight sun, that's thought to be, you know, maybe one of the darkest period places. Kind of hard to get there in the winter though, isn't it? Well, exactly. It's definitely, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a snow machine. I think they call them up there. Yeah. And then, you know, you and I have shared a raft trip in the bottom of, uh, of uh, Canyonlands, uh, can- yeah. bottom of Canyonlands, and maybe even to a lesser extent Grand Canyon, because the, the well effect, um, you know, looking at to just the zenith of the sky, light pollution shows up first on the horizons, and when you're in the bottom of the canyon, you don't have much for horizons, so you can get to, you know, truly dark experiences and places like that too. What about our East Coast friends? Well, Acadia um, has an interesting claim to fame. It's something like it's the darkest sky that 20 million people can drive to in a day. Uh, if I if I'm telling that stat correctly, I didn't know. I hope you're right. Yeah, we we might have to double check that. But um, you know, certainly the the eastern seaboard. You know, if you're going to drive somewhere to see really dark sky, northeastern seaboard, you would go to Acadia. And then, um, well, the, uh, the International Dark Sky Association's uh, website has a list and lots and lots of dark sky. My last last count, dark sky parks numbered somewhere like 75 or something like that. And surprising amount of them are on the east coast hmm. dry tortugas everybody's favorite park when you want to be the cool person at a national park service traveler cocktail party you just say dry tortugas and you know see how many people run to where you're standing yeah i've only been there once and uh but you know out in the middle of the Caribbean ocean super dark too so that's another place that people who really want uh, that experience seek it out regardless of cost or traveling difficulties will head for Big Bend in Texas is exceptionally dark. That's that's another great one. Probably the best observatory in uh, North America is not far from there. Um, McDonald Observatory. They uh, they're really good at uh, public entertainment at the same time they do cutting edge science. So hmm. they've uh, they've long been our envy. What what about uh, Haleakala? I mean, uh, aren't there a few uh, telescopes on that? That's true. I keep forgetting Hawaii is a state. Yeah. Yeah. No. So when you, when you leave North America proper, then you have to include Hawaii. And, and there's a little bit of a caveat to it, but it works out almost every night anyway, where if you wait uh, for the clouds to roll in and cover up the city lights underneath, then yeah, then, then uh, 
either the either big mountain gives you uh, extraordinary stargazing and and that's why there's a lot of big research telescopes there too yeah this is kurt repencheck with national parks traveler we've been talking with kevin poe a ranger from bryce canyon national park who is also known as the dark ranger um, about night skies over the uh, national park system Um, we'll be back in a minute listener and reader support make national parks traveler possible every day of the year if you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, Kevin, you've been telling us about the best parks for stargazing. There are more and more uh, astronomy festivals across the park system, but if if you arrive at a park and you don't have a festival to take part in or a dark ranger to show you the night sky, what, what should we look for overhead? Oh, that's a fun question. So um, I think for most people, the most dramatic thing you can see without any you know, technological aids, even pair of binoculars, is just the Milky Way arcing for as far as you can see. And, and then, you know, when we say the Milky Way, what do we mean? Well, my mom always teases me that um, astronomers do this wrong. My mom's a, an English teacher. And so words are very important to her. And uh, so what she would say, you know, this the standard thing is your, your night sky guide pulls out a green laser and draws a big arc in the sky through the Milky Way and goes, behold, the Milky Way. And then what my mom would do is she'd pull out her green laser because she always has one in her purse. And she would shine it on the ground and say, yeah, there's some Milky Way over here if you want to look at it. And then she'd <laughs> raise up her arm and say, I got some in my armpit if you want to look at the Milky Way here. You don't even Because what my mom is trying to tell everybody is the Milky Way is our galaxy. It's the everything that we are in. It's everywhere around us. Uh, what she would say is we're looking at an arm of the Milky Way. And then she would say that, you know, like she say to me, you know, Kevy, when you invite people to your observatory, you don't raise your arm up in the sky and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kevin because, you know, you, you were the whole thing. So when you're looking at the Milky Way, you're looking at a small portion of one of our galaxy's arms. And the summer Milky Way is the one that people are most common used to seeing. But in the wintertime, over the top of Orion, you can see another arm of our galaxy that is called the Orion Spur. So oftentimes it's called the winter Milky Way, but you understand it's very offensive to people in Australia, uh, Mm. the Northern Hemisphere bias and all that. So we're supposed to say the Orion Spur as one of the arms of our galaxy and then the Sagittarius arm as the other. But for somebody who just wants to, you know, immerse themselves in dark guy experience, that's enough. Get a lawn chair, uh, lay on the hood of your car and just spend an hour. If you, if you can imagine enjoying that view, 
look for the dark lanes within the Milky Way. In really dark sky, you'll see the Milky Way is, is split into two. Uh, there's silver on left and right sides, and then there's a dark ribbon that kind of runs through the center. What that is, is literally billions upon billions of unborn stars still in their cocoons, and they're close enough together, and then the dark carbon gas absorbs enough light that it creates a texture. In, in, in astronomy, we always talk about texture, and it's a, it's a weird pairing, but lumpy darkness is the fun phrase to describe the ribbon that runs through the middle of the Milky Way, because you'll compare that kind of darkness to the darkness of empty space, and empty space has a, has the, is the color of a flat gray, and, and it's, it's the texture of nothing, because that's what it is. But the ribbon within the, the Milky Way has this lumpy texture. You can see knots and twists and turns in it. And that's a truly an exciting thing to explore. And, and literally, if you're, if you're an artist or anybody who is just interested in, in uh, scrutiny, um, you could spend an hour on the hood of a car or in a lawn chair tracing that uh, silver rainbow uh, from horizon to horizon and, and uh, finding your own patterns uh, in, the, in the, uh, the dark lane, the lumpy darkness of the Milky Way. Now, if somebody wants to take the next step and uh, um, bring a little aid to their eyes, um, does it require a hefty investment to uh, get, uh, say, a, a decent pair of binoculars or, or maybe a, a introductory uh, telescope? Yeah, and I would, st- uh, well, first of all, no, not necessarily. And I would start with binoculars, you know, because a good pair of binoculars, you can look at birds and animals and all kinds of things. And uh, not a hefty investment, but a hefty pair of binoculars, if you take my meaning. Sure. Um, Orion and Celestron, uh, both famous for making telescopes, um, make the best what we used to call battleship binoculars. You know, big monstrous ones that you probably wouldn't backpack with, but uh, can get you, you know, to 25 power um, and and 100 millimeters of light gathering ability. So a pair of those uh, in a lawn chair. I keep mentioning lawn chairs. Every uh, national park traveler should have one. You like the, those. <laughs> oh, yeah, the elbow rest. You know, it's not a hikers, these backpacker types, you know, like uh, lawn chairs are for sissies. Um, well, fine. But uh, once you get back to your vehicle, it's the very best way to see the sky because you can rest your elbows on the armrests of the chair. And uh, then the big heavy weight of the binoculars are easier to balance. And, and uh, sure, yeah, you can trace the Milky Way with your binoculars. You can look at anything in the sky that's just a little bit fuzzy and a little bit odd and put a pair of binoculars on that. You'll have discovered, as far as you know, uh, a star cluster or maybe a starburst nebulae. Um, there's uh, all kinds of fun little books and things online to uh, called binocular astronomy. That's a good place to start. Oh, I have to keep an eye out for those. Now, uh, of course, you know, dark night skies over national parks have been all the rage in recent years. And yet light pollution um, seems to be constantly invading our space. What, what are the key threats to the dark skies over the, the parks? Well, <laughs> boy, this is all, how much time do we have? Um, so I guess what I always tell people is the, the, the best thing you can do is to shade your light fixture. You know, if you decide you want to be part of a force for good on this, and this is one of those times, it's like picking up trash, you know, if you can only pick up 10 pieces of trash, so that's 10 less that are on the ground or that might end up in the Pacific garbage patch or whatever else. Cause it's, it is a real problem. It's a, it's a daunting thing and it's easy to, Imagine as an individual, you can't make a big difference. But after shielding your light fixture, after making sure your light points down, the very next best thing you can do is to change the color, to make it as amber as you can. Red is ideal, but boy, you have to be a pretty secure individual to light your house in red. You know, most people just uh, just aren't quite that comfortable with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so amber 
is good. Red is best, but amber is better. And what we're talking about good and best and better is both ecological uh, concerns for artificial light at night and how far that light will travel. So back to your original question. The biggest problem is LED light bulbs, which were supposed to be our savior, right? Because they right. use so little electricity and you only have to replace them every 25 years and municipalities are throwing away, well, maybe selling off their ladder trucks because they don't need, they know they're not going to change the light bulb for 25 years. Why would they have this big expensive vehicle sitting in the parking lot? So wonderful things are are and have happened because of LEDs. But the problem is, is that lighting engineers try to wow their customers by making as bright of light as they can with the least amount of electric consumption. And what it amounts to is the biology of light because humans are most sensitive to blue colored light. So they will provide you with a blue white light fixture because it seems so much brighter than amber or yellow. And yet, if you had a photometer in your hand, you could measure and you would see the lumens produced are exactly the same, even though to our eyes, it looks 10 times brighter. So there's the problem. A lot of cities are doing the right thing. They're switching to LEDs, but they're not demanding as they should. What we would say is a, a cooler temperature, which means um, in the light bulb industry, a, uh, a less blue, uh, more amber colored light fixture. Those are the ones that are going to keep your light pollution to yourself and not spread out into the hinterlands, into the national parks where, where people have made a considerable effort uh, to get away from all that for a night or two. Do you have a sense that uh, gateway towns to the national parks are, are doing what they can to, to minimize light pollution? Depends on the gateway towns. Um, uh, Springdale, Utah, fantastic. Uh, not entirely, but mostly. It's almost like a one-up the chip. Some of the businesses in Springdale, and I, I can't confirm this, but as a... Uh, aficionado and a, a uh, champion of preserving the nice guy. It feels like they're competing with each other who can still get the advertising job done with the least amount of light. And uh, I've had a fun time uh, checking out new businesses and, and taking my little Dark Ranger videos, uh, posting online to show you know how, how creative thinking can provide really beautiful advertising that produces almost no light. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's good examples. And then there's others, um, that tone deaf is probably the right turn of phrase hmm. that, uh, know that they have a resource, um, that people value because when they book a room with them, they will say, so you're right near Bryce Canyon, huh? We came to see the stars and they're like, great, you know, $150 please. And, uh, and then we're not seeing that carry through at least in the Bryce Canyon area, uh, individual businesses are, are making an effort. But uh, communities, not yet. And uh, we, we are quite envious of Torrey. Um, Torrey, Utah mm. has by embraced. Reef. Yeah, by Capital Reef, thank you, has embraced the, the night sky tourism entirely and, uh, and, and are doing wonderful things. Yeah, that's good to know. That's good to know. We've been visiting today with Kevin Poe, a ranger from Bryce Canyon National Park, who is also the Dark Ranger and the force behind Dark Ranger Telescope Tours. Now, when you visit Bryce Canyon, you can try and track Kevin down on the job to talk night skies or take a trip across the night sky with his Dark Ranger Telescope Tours, which you can find um, at, surprisingly enough, darkrangertelescopetours.com. Kevin, uh, one last question for you today. When is the Bryce Canyon Astronomy Festival? It's usually the new moon in June, um, which this year, or, you know, the weekend that encompasses the new moon in June. And this year it will be, he said, checking the calendar because he doesn't want to get it wrong, June 26th through June 29th. So it's a Wednesday through a Saturday. 
And it's not the only astronomy festival in the National Park Service, but it's the first one. And uh, it has a, a long history. Uh, this should be funny. I don't know for sure. Um, this should be like year 18, I guess. It's up there, I know. Yeah. Uh, the, the next longest running one, and just a shout out to the people in the upper Midwest, Badlands. Uh, Badlands has a, a great astronomy program, nightly offering. Not every dark sky uh, designated national park uh, makes a concerted effort to share their beautiful resource with the general public. But uh, Bryce Canyon, Badlands, Great Basin, those are the ones you want to go to if you'd like to have a dark ranger type guide lets you get the story behind the scenery, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate your time today, and it gives me an assignment to uh, see if I can't uh, corral all the dates for this year's uh, dark sky uh, festivals across the park system and get them posted on National Parks Traveler. Yeah. If I can throw a plug out there, too, this is an easy URL, easier than mine, um, but at nightskyparks.org. And this is a, um, a list of national parks that offer night sky presentations. And uh, it doesn't get updated every year, sadly, but uh, what's there is accurate enough that it's worth picking up the phone or making an email to say, hey, do you guys still do astronomy presentations? Uh, and don't say astrology, folks. Um, for those of us that enjoy math and science, that's offensive. Uh, so say <laughs> astronomy. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Kevin. And uh, we'll have to catch up down the road and see how things are going. Thanks a lot, Kurt. A lot of fun. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnp.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Venezuela is a lush and beautiful country near the top of South America. Its geography ranges from the Andes Mountains near the country's western border and sparkling Caribbean waters on the east coast to the Amazon Basin in the southern reaches of the country. More than 20% of this landscape has been protected through the creation of national parks. The world's tallest waterfall, Angel Falls, stands in Kenanima National Park. There are dense rainforests, headwaters of one of the continent's longest rivers, and stunningly rich biodiversity held within more than 40 national parks. But in recent years, Venezuela has been racked by political and social turmoil. Its economy is in tatters, millions of residents have fled the country in recent years, and tourism is virtually nil due to safety concerns. 
How are the country's national parks faring under these circumstances? Contributing writer Kim O'Connell has been examining the situation. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Kurt. I appreciate being here. So we wanted to take a look. Uh, You've been working on this uh, feature for some time now, and it's uh, still a work in production. But we're curious, what is your initial takeaway from, from your reporting? My initial takeaway is that the Venezuelan government has basically been managing the parks through neglect. And one of my sources called it abandonment for some time now, even preceding this most recent crisis. The idea is that they've created these national parks. They have a park agency designated to, to oversee these national parks, but they're routinely underfunded. They're understaffed. And illegal activity has been allowed to kind of thrive in the national park system. So occasionally there'll be some government movement to say, get rid of an illegal mine or do something, but generally these parks are left alone and they're neglected. Now you you know cut to the current crisis and things have gotten even worse because there's absolutely no oversight right now on these incredible parklands and illegal activity within the parks has grown exponentially. So it's a really distressing situation. And I would say another aspect of the situation that I'm finding is that because there's such a crisis, there is even less opportunity for, say, you know, outside conservation organizations or anyone to even feel safe to come into this situation and try to advocate for these national park lands. So it's, it's a really difficult and distressing situation there. And I'm guessing um, a lot of the, the research conducted by some of these NGOs has probably fallen away. I do think so. I, you know, I've talked to a couple sources who have said that there were some conservation um, organizations like the Nature Conservancy and others that had some nascent partnerships going to do this or that, do some research, do some conservation efforts. And one by one, all these other groups have kind of ended their partnerships, have sort of silently withdrawn from Venezuela, you know, with good reason to a certain extent, because it is a really unstable situation. But there's just there's just virtually no eyes on these national parks right now. Does um, Venezuela have uh, an agency similar to our National Park Service? They do. It's called Inparcus. And, um, you know, it is a staffed government agency. But my understanding so far is that there just hasn't been a lot of funding available for this park agency. So kind of like how our U.S. national park system is, you know, sort of chronically underfunded and facing a massive backlog the Venezuelan Park Agency is kind of facing the same situation in a vastly more volatile political environment. So they're kind of pushing a boulder, you know, big boulder way uphill right now. And I just don't think they're getting a lot of support. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's got a lot of um, impact on the local communities too. Um, Some years ago, I was in Belize and um, their national parks, the same situation, didn't really have a, a, a strong agency like the National Park Service, but a lot of the locals could make a living by by guiding you know visitors, tourists into the parks, whether they wanted to see dramatic sites like Angel Falls or, or the bird life there. And so with the tourism falling off, I, I guess the, the ramifications go all the way down the line. Yeah, I think so. I haven't heard yet in my research of, you know, kind of homegrown you know, tourist um, activities that in the, of that kind, like you said. And, you know, I think tourists are afraid to come to Venezuela right now. And also for the locals, it's just such a dire situation, just having electrical power and, you know, fresh water and, you know, access to food is kind of the most important thing right now during this humanitarian crisis. So I doubt they're really um, able to even kind of 
think, you know, about how to take advantage of a national park that's nearby that they could possibly make some money from. Any idea? Um, has the State Department, the U.S. State Department, uh, issued travel restrictions? You know, I haven't um, come across that yet. That's a good question. So I, I will investigate that. Yeah. And and I guess another um, aspect of this is uh, some of these national parks, or maybe most of them, have indigenous communities that reside within them. That's right. And I, you know, I wonder to a certain extent whether they're actually better able to survive in these situations because they're used to surviving um, kind of in a more rustic environment like the national parks. Um, that's a good question to investigate about how they're faring. I do think one danger for the indigenous peoples that reside within these national parks is that without any oversight, the illegal activity that's taking place within the parks is growing. So that that has to be having some kind of impact just in terms of access and available land and, you know, access to clean water and things. So, I, you know, I'm sure that is having an impact, especially in certain national parks. Have you been able to come across any um, specific national park that has uh, had egregious activities occurring in it, more so than others? Well, there's a private advocacy group called SOS Orinoco that has... Um, published two reports now, two out of a planned three, that focus on what's going to be three national parks in the region really um, closely to determine the extent of illegal activity. And the first report they issued was about Kanaima National Park, which is in the southern half of the country in the Guiana Highlands, an incredibly scenic area. And that national park is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it has an incredible number of illegal gold mines and, and mining activity in this park and growing. And their second report was on a, on a place called Yapacana National Park. Same thing, you know, just dozens upon dozens of illegal mining um, or mining sites. And, you know, it's, it's not just a mine, you know, the mine then has, you know, um, impacts on, on the waterways and there's roadways to get to and from these places. And it's just like, it's really just um, devastating to the, to the landscape. And, they have sources on the ground that at great peril to themselves are trying to gather this information. Um, they've used some ingenious techniques like satellite imagery to determine the extent of the mining there in the parks. And they're really you know, incredibly detailed and important reports that they're doing. Um, and a third one should be coming out this April. That's Kim O'Connell, contributing writer, um, bringing us an update on her research into um, the state of Venezuela's national parks. Kim, thank you very much. We're looking forward to your story. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. 
Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. Our forefathers were fiendish, hellish, you might even say devilish. Need proof of that? Look at the maps and the names of many of the places we visit. Then ask yourself, why in the hell are so many places in our western national parks named after the infernal demon and his lair? You would think that the spiritual would override the demonic, based on the early settlers' religious bent. But hundreds of hellish names are written large across our landscape, making it seem like a literal hell on earth. There are hell gates and hell holes, and hell's half acres. There are devil's slides, devil's playgrounds, devil's post pile, devil's golf course, and Diablo Canyons. Yellowstone National Park is rife with these names. The western landscape is harsh, dry, and rugged, so maybe it's appropriate that the broad deserts, sweeping plains, jagged peaks, strange earth forms, and the unearthly chasms have been given these labels. And they're not even all in English. While Native American nations traditionally don't have a literal devil in their language, there are spiritual names in their landscape. The early invading Spanish left a large legacy of places with Diablo and Inferna names, and even the French got into the game with Purgatory. But by far, most of these topographical names are in English, seeing as how they largely were bestowed by the settlers, pioneers, and conquerors in the region. Author Wallace Stegner summed it up when he wrote that the devil had a good deal to do with the making of the West, if we may believe the West's many place names. Take, for example, Devil's Tower National Monument in northeastern Wyoming. You won't find a more unusual landmark anywhere with its flat top, striated basalt sides, and its prominence rising above the grassy plains. It rivals any man-made ancient temple. American author Scott Mamaday understood that this was a unique geologic feature a remnant of the interior of a 30-million-year-old volcano whose soft surrounding strata had worn away when he described it at first sight. A dark mist lay over the Black Hills, and the land was like iron. At the top of the ridge, I caught sight of Devil's Tower, upthrust against the gray sky as if, in the birth of time, the core of the earth had broken through its crust and the motion of the world was begun. There are things in nature that engender an awful quiet in the heart of man, Devil's Tower is one of them. Devil's Tower is truly an unexpected and astounding sight, which is why it graces all Wyoming license plates. It looms 1,200 feet above the red rock banks of the Belfouche River, and its acre-sized summit is the ultimate altar, long revered as a sacred place by Native Americans, such as the Lakota Sioux. It also draws some half a million visitors a year, and has been known to even attract alien invaders, as depicted in the 1977 film close encounters of the third kind. But Devil's Tower means different things to different people. Amid the pop cans and candy wrappers near the base, you might find medicine bundles, tobacco, and twigs wrapped in torn pieces of colorful bandanas hanging from tree limbs. These are the sacred offerings of the Lakota, Crow, and other tribes. High above the bundles, lycra-clad rock climbers pick their way up via the crack systems on the six-sided rock columns, their orange ropes spreading like spider webs across the lichen-covered cliffs. Down below, howling Harley riders arrive in vast herds on the way to Sturgis, South Dakota. It's truly a conflicted space. Even the name Devil's Tower is in dispute and represents a classic clash of cultures. 
1875, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Irving Dodge, along with his subordinate, George Armstrong Custer, described Devil's Tower and affixed that name to maps. Though in 1812, mountain man James Dougherty put it on the map as Devil's Mountain. Later, in 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt proclaimed Devil's Tower as our premier national monument for the protection of native artifacts and archaeological sites. But before Europeans came on the scene, it was known by many different names by the Arapaho, Crow, Lakota, Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Shoshone. Some 20 native tribes have cultural and spiritual connections with Devil's Tower, but only five of those have actual geographic and historic connections. The Lakota, for example, believe that their own 3,000-year-old emergence site lies not far away in the Black Hills in today's Wind Cave National Park. To them, the tower is a place for renewal, where they pray to their gods, but not to the tower. And some conflict between worshippers and casual visitors still continues. Some visitors are unfamiliar with the tower's importance to native cultures, and have even desecrated the medicine bundles. So as not to intrude on sacred tribal gatherings, the National Park Service limits climbs up the tower during the month of June, when the tribes gather during summer solstice for their sun dance. As you can see, what is one person's playground is another's chapel. So for now, this black basalt tower's name depends upon whom you talk to. What its real name is, however, no one knows. That's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.